to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Greetings, aspiring GCs. Whether you're in law school, private practice, government, or in-house, you're in the right place. My name is David Hamm. I'm the co-chair of the in-house subcommittee of the ABA Corporate Governance Committee. More importantly, I share your aspiration of one day becoming a general counsel. But like you, I'm not sure how to get there. That's where Conversations with GCs comes in. The purpose of the podcast is to help aspiring GCs find the practical and actionable guidance they've been looking for. To that end, we'll be having conversations with leading GCs for the purpose of exploring the path that led them to the role of GC, essential skills and characteristics for being a successful GC, current GC hot topics, and practical and actionable advice for aspiring GCs. Before we start the conversation, one quick request. We'd love to hear from you. Please send any comments or questions, including any expressions of interest in being a part of the ABA Corporate Governance Committee or its small but mighty in-house subcommittee to dph64 at georgetown.edu. That's dph64 at georgetown.edu. Today, I'm very fortunate to be joined by Olga V. Mack for the second part of our conversation. For a more complete recitation of Olga's impressive bio, please refer back to part one of our discussion. But to cover some key points, Olga is the CEO of ParleyPro, a next-generation contract management company that has pioneered digital negotiation technology and award-winning general counsel, operations professional, startup advisor, public speaker, adjunct professor, and entrepreneur. Olga, thanks for coming back to the show. Hi, David. It's great to be back. Well, in our first conversation, we were able to spend some time exploring together the path that led you to the role of GC. We touched on some essential skills and characteristics for being a successful GC and highlighted some current GC hot topics. Through that great conversation, you sprinkled in some great advice for aspiring GCs. But at the end of the conversation, I just felt like there was much more there. So if it sounds okay to you, I'd like to spend our time today going in a little deeper to getting some practical and actual advice to aspiring GCs, and then thinking through some other topics that you and I have discussed. So getting into the practical and actual advice for aspiring GCs, obviously, we have listeners at a lot of different stages. So thought it might be helpful just to go stage by stage and think about what would Olga say to the aspiring GC who's at these different parts of their career. Um, What do you think about the person in law school who's listening to this and is saying, hmm, you know, maybe GC is or in-house is something I aspire to. I know we've talked a little bit about this, but interested as, as we're talking again, what would you say to the student in law school who has the inklings of this inclination? You know, in law school, um, I don't know about the old law school, um, I, I tried really hard 
to do as many practical things yeah. as possible. Um, I think it's very easy to be very academic mm. um, in what really is a very practical field. Um, and, you know, to that end, you know, I, you know, during law school, I did all kinds of things. I, um, I, I did quite a few clinics. I did an employment clinic and I did the technology clinic that was kind of more advocacy. Um, I did, um, I worked at Yahoo that at the time acquired uh, Flickr and my job was to help uh, that team to transition to Yahoo. I worked um, at the California Law Review Commission and FTC and Ninth uh, Circuit Court of Appeal um, and uh, numerous other things. Um, and I think really, it really doesn't matter what you do. Um, it's, it's just trying those things uh, and give it a shot. I think I had no idea what kind of lawyer I wanted to be let alone where I would like to practice. But through all of those sort of practical experiences, you sort of get a definition of what's available and what may be a fit for you today or in other later stages. Uh, and I, you know, I find that every one of those experiences that I just named came back to me later on. Mm -hmm. So for example, the Law Revision Commission, you know, I did research for that commission for about two years. Um, when I was in law school, it was, it was a paid job. Um, Governor Brown appointed me to be on that commission wow. um, a few years ago, precisely because I actually knew what it was and knew how it worked and know people who have been leading this commission now for a long time and care deeply about it. Um, you know, Yahoo experience was so instrumental in my tech career. I always look back at it and really remember the day when um, I was part of the intellectual property harvesting session and I was busy taking notes of all the PhDs, <laughs> all the incredible things that they were saying. And I remember after that, when um, the IP lawyer was asking me, was anything possible, what we should happen, how we should think about it. And I remember thinking, hey, a lot of this is possible, but I just can't imagine it. Um, and then seeing for the next 15 years, every single one of the ideas in the room become a business that we enjoy today. Wow. Um, <laughs> and realizing how, how I lacked imagination <laughs> at mm. the time. <laughs> Mm. And how humbling that may be. So I really learned a lot from the experience now when I say I cannot imagine. I usually, when I say that to myself or out loud, I pause. And then I realize that occasionally we have imagination problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, uh, this is fantastic. And, and what, it, what you're doing, at least what I'm how I'm perceiving this is recasting a narrative of law school. So there is a really dominant view, and maybe it's just in the water, I, I, maybe it's unspoken, but that you go to law school, 
you work your tail off, exclusively spend your time studying, to your point, being very academic, so you can get good grades your first semester, so you can get a good internship that first summer, so that you can get a good internship the second summer, and then get a offer at a big firm, and then that's the path. And what I'm hearing from you is, because at some point it's a zero-sum game, if you spend time doing all these fun practical things you take away from the academic, you know, the hour you could be studying, how would you encourage or just push against a little bit more that, I don't know if it's a dominant narrative, but it was definitely the one I bought into without realizing it, a view of school to say it's it's more than grades, grades are important, but to push back and to say, yes, you have to study, but also you should think about a broader purpose of why you're at law school. Well, those things are not mutually exclusive, right? Mm. I, um, in the end of the day, you know, I also had a, you know, workshop with two big law firms <laughs> yep. uh, and uh, continue, you know, I, I, you know, my, my past, you know, has been actually, in, in, at least in the beginning of my career, and many people pointed out to me, somewhat traditional. Um, so I think in my case, the reason for that is because is the reason I, pushed for the practical experiences. Um, there is a, actually a very specific reason for that is because before going to law school, I made a very conscious choice. At the time I was considering between the PhD program in economics um, in the University of Chicago and um, or law school. Um, and Berkeley was one of the law schools that I considered at the time. Um, and I and at that for me that was a very intentional decision where I really thought through do I want to be an academic or do I want to be a practitioner? Mm-hmm. So I went to law school to be a practitioner. Mm-hmm. I you know and I went through that decision for a good nine to twelve months um, as a senior in college and as I was um, I had a fellowship from Haas Foundation to do research abroad and I was traveling around the world asking myself. Do I want to be a theoretician or do I want to be a practitioner? <laughs> mm. um, and, and there's nothing wrong with either choice. I just had to figure out what was right for me. And through a series of adventures worldwide, I made a decision that practitioner is what I want to be. Yeah. And hence, you know, law school became a more obvious choice. I I, I got to to law school, and to my biggest surprise. The focus was kind of what I would imagine the focus would have been in the first year PhD program. Right. And 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 I and at the time my mother was actually really sick, um, and I did not like mm. what I saw. <laughs> I mm. you know I, I mean I was intellectually challenged, but I because at that time I made a decision that I want to be a practitioner, and I had this moment of. How is this helpful yeah. uh, to get there? And so I highly considered dropping out of law school. Um, mm. You know, I had my economics degree. I still had a job offer in investment banking. Um, and uh, I knew that I didn't want to be a theoretician. So I went to see Dina Ortiz, who is a wonderful person. She was very supportive. Um, and I conveyed to her that, look, um, I, I feel very different than a normal law student. Um, and I intentionally made a choice to go to law school to be a practitioner. Um, 
we should start thinking whether this is the right path for me. Mm. <laughs> and and she said two things. She said one is Olga. I remember reading your application. Um, I know you're different, and I think we need that difference in law. Mm. And that's precisely why we picked you. Mm. Um, and then she said, two, there are ways before you, you know, give yourself another semester or two and try things, practical things. Um, and if after practicing law, whatever that means, you still don't want to do that thing then I understand I will help you do it the right way. And so that's, that's why I, 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 I that's where, when I got three jobs <laughs> and, and joined a bunch of clinics. Yeah. So that, you know, it was mm. right after my first semester of, of law school and I continued on that path. Um, and what I realized very quickly that, you know, I like, you know, I was part of the clinic who went to Sacramento and I argued against the bill. I loved it. Mm. I I was summering with Judge Newton in the Ninth Circuit, with whom I disagree uh, philosophically on many issues, except two: one, intellectual property; two, immigration. And we were, even though polar opposites in many ways, you know, really had a great partnership. He taught me quite a lot um, mm. about expectations in the courtroom. Um, you know, that's when I joined FTC and, and that this real front view seat uh, on privacy and that's consolidated uh, the importance of focusing on privacy in law school at the time when all we talked about was search and seizure. So mm. I I did not like what I thought the, I said that sort of academic focus, um, but I fell in love with practicality and practicing mm. law. And so I persevered through law school, not because I enjoyed <laughs> it, but because the practice of law seems like an exciting place to be. So would it be fair to kind of summarize that advice for a law student who's thinking maybe in-house, maybe GC is a ultimate aspiration or a, a aspiration out there to say an in-house counsel or a general counsel is the ultimate, maybe not the ultimate, but definitely deep in the sense of being a practitioner as opposed to a theorist. <laughs> and so if you have an interest and you want to test to see if that's for you, you should lean into the practical side of offerings of law school, not just the academic. That's exactly right. I mean, yeah. in-house is an ultimate practitioner. You probably don't have enough information in law school. You cannot be wrong by trying as many practical things as possible that will yeah. prepare you for whatever road you take um and and yes that will give you a taste of of, of the practice of, of of being a practitioner not theoretician that's fantastic okay so now now we're shifting to they've made it through law school they went through the process they're at a firm They've been there for a while and they're thinking, you know, I hear about this in-house thing and maybe I listen to a podcast about it. I'm, I'm thinking about it. What, what advice would you give to someone who's thinking about making the switch from being from a firm to switching to in-house? Yeah. So when I went to law, to, to law firm, um, I did not, I could not, again, I could not imagine 
doing anything else. <laughs> Another time in my life where I lacked imagination. Um, and, um, and at some point, um, because I, I found myself to be a litigator, predominantly because of economic forces, not of, of, of a free will, because that's the only job I could get in 2006 and, and be intellectual property, privacy, security lawyer. Um, I just proved to myself that I didn't want to be a litigator. Um, and so I, I had to pivot and I was looking where to pivot and how it sort of materialized. Um, I think, you know, when you're in a law firm and you thinking through that pivot, I think for some people, it will be a bigger pivot than others. Mm. Um, if you're in the corporate or transactional practice or industry specific practice, you probably already, one, you have the necessary skills and two, you're working with uh, folks who can are in a position to hire you. That makes so sense. chances are, if you do a good job somewhere um, and somebody enjoys working with you at some point, they will pull you aside and ask you, you know, if you would consider joining the team. Mm -hmm. um, that's what happened to a lot of my colleagues on the corporate transactional side. So I think, it, it, you know, I don't want to say it's a no-brainer, but it, I think it's an easier transition yeah. for those folks. For those of us who have been on litigation side, that is a more unusual event, especially if you don't want to go in-house and continue on the litigation path. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so that took some maneuvering um, and, uh, you know, a lot of intentional steps to do. Uh, some of them required education. Some of them required network. But the, the, the reality is, is that my network was not strong enough and it, um, I, it takes time to build it. At, at, at that time, you know, num you only need one job <laughs> that you love. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it really just becomes like uh, a, a, an exercise in, in throwing everything and see what sticks and going through as many interviews as possible and learning in the process. And uh, through that very frustrating process, I got myself the, the in-house opportunity. Yeah, no, I, th I think I remember for our last conversation, you had nine processes going on at, at one time and then none of them ended up working out at that time and then uh, you had an opportunity come at a really interesting way that that worked out so i guess your your would it be fair to summarize it this way i guess the the counsel or the advice depends on where you're positioned in the law firm related to your clients and if you're in more of the corporate security space maybe there's less intentionality needed but if you're in a a different area where there'd be a greater process to that transition then more proactivity is is needed on the network side and the skill building side yeah absolutely i it's really just it, how, how much of a pivot it really is right yeah yeah no that's helpful okay so now now our attorney has made it from law school to the law firm they've made the pivot to in-house and they're they're pretty junior and they're thinking about, you know, I've been here for a couple of years. I'm really starting to learn the space and I'm, I'm looking for that first GC role. What, what advice would you give to that person? And, you know, that's, that's where I am. So what advice would you give to me, Olga? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the, you know, I remember being um, in, you know, in-house and thinking um, that I, would want to be uh, a general counsel. In fact, actually, I started out initially with I want to be a more senior. I actually wanted to right. be a number two lawyer. So right. That was actually the goal. And I had a moment 
where I, I got another offer and my husband was like really excited. And he said, are you going to take this job? Are you going to take this job? And I was like, look, it's kind of the same job I already have. Like, you know, maybe it pays a little more. Maybe the people are slightly better. Why would I take that job? And he said to me, well, Uga, because he was sort of frustrated because I went through this exercise of applying and interviewing and, you know, everybody, <laughs> you know, and so he, he was like, well, we got the job. Why aren't you taking it? And, and, and I said, well, it's kind of the same job. And he said, well, is there a job in this world that you would take? He was kind of frustrated. And I was like, yeah, if you offer me a number two position, I will take it. <laughs> and, he, and he looked at me and he said, well, have you applied for one? <laughs> and, 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 I, and I said, no. <laughs> so he sort of gave me the stare, like, you know, like only a spouse who's also a lawyer can give you. Yeah. Uh, you know, what do you expect? You know, yeah. and, it, you know, that, that, that's kind of my answer, at least mm. to a large extent, you know, make a decision that that's what you want and actually to do something about whatever something is. Yeah. In um, daydreaming is may not materialize to a job you want. <laughs> Applying may help. Right, um, <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, and I think, you know, it's funny, Olga, since starting this podcast and having getting a little bit more out there, I've had a lot of conversations um, with people and there, there seems to be this sense that if you submit an application, you have made a commitment. Um, and, and I've really been trying to push back against that. I'm interested in your thoughts. I mean, in my opinion, if if you want, and what I'm hearing from you is, if you want a number two spot or if you want a GC spot or whatever the case, you need to be able to not wait on it to come to you by daydreaming, but go out and see what's out there and put a lot of applications out there and start conversations where I think to some people that doesn't feel right. What, what would you say to that person? Cause I don't know if I've been convincing in my conversations, but to me, I just don't buy that. Look, I mean, I think you're kind of right and kind of not right. I mean, by applying, you're not guaranteed a job. And so that's definitely, you know, you, you haven't made a commitment to leave. Right. So, right. so in, in that way, David, you're absolutely right. There are many steps uh, before it's a commitment to leave, but that application is is an important step. And actually, I think the step before it, the decision to be on that path, mm. that is a commitment. So for you to apply for a job, you have to have a resume, or you right. have to think through what that path looks like. You, you probably will need to invest some time to you know assess your skills and all kinds of other things. And, and so it is a commitment to yourself. Helpful. Yeah, <laughs> helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's a really helpful distinction. I think they were thinking it's a commitment to the company to whom they're applying, which I think we would both say, no, it's not. But you're right to say, if you do this, you're committing to a path, which is good if that's what you want. Yeah, and you, you, you're putting skin in the game, investing time, yeah, right? The one yeah. thing we have short on often is time. You could spend it with your kids. You can spend time sleeping and, you know, watching TV. But you've chosen to put your mm. resume together, you know, and, and we know that applications take time, unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> and that's one push of a button type of experience. There's sometimes a lot of questions. So you have committed to yourself to put yourself on the path to consider and that's mm. a very important signal to the sort of yourself and the universe that that's an option 
Yeah, no, that's a really helpful. It's a commitment, but not in the way that they were thinking, but an important step beyond the daydreaming <laughs> to go out and actually take a tangible step in getting what you want. That's that's really helpful. Now, this this question is, haven't asked it yet, but interested because you've been in GC interviews, you've had the GC offers, and you've decided to accept. What advice would you give to a person in the process and they get the offer um, or they're going through the process? How do they assess for them whether this is the, a good company, if they're a fit, if they should take it or walk away? I, I would say by the time you get an offer, because usually in my experience, GC hire is so important. Yeah. It's a critical hire for many reasons. You know, one, you know, the actual legal obstacles for the company could be a bummer if not well navigated. Yeah. Um, but also it's an executive role and visible role, both publicly and internally, that's a leader. Uh, and, and so it's, it's an important choice for the company. So you will go through a number of interviews mm. uh, with all kinds of people. So this is not an event to get a, an offer as a general counsel, it's a process. Yeah. And so you will have many opportunity to consider for yourself and convince others that you're the right fit. So in my experience, by the time you get on the other side of it, because mm. they are so actively looking for a cultural fit, knowledge fit, industry fit, whatever that means to them, you know, uh, you should also be asking yourself the same questions if you're not asleep behind the wheel. So, in my experience, by the time you get to the point where you get an answer, because it takes time and, you know, very few people do it because of some, you know, uh, reason to prove something to yourself, it takes work. Yeah. Um, you have a pretty clear answer to for yourself if this right. feels right. Like, did you like your peers? Right. Did you like meeting the CEO? Can you imagine him or her take your advice? Right. Would you like to work with this kind of person? Do you like the CFO or COO or VP of sales or marketing? Uh, will you have relationships of peers? Because those are your peers now. Right. Um, did you get a sense of a culture mm. industry if it's a new industry? Can you imagine, you know, spending, you know, at least one, but probably two, three, five years in this? You know, so if, you, if you're not asking yourself these questions, you're just behind the wheel. You should be asking yourself these questions and evaluating for fit just as actively, but with different parameters that are important to you as you go through the interviews. So in my experience, uh, by the time you get to the offer, the answer is pretty clear. If you yeah. sort of put your hand on the heart and you weren't asleep, uh, you would be able to kind of, given your priority list, uh, evaluate if the path you're about to take or considering is right for you because it just takes time and at every turn um, you you are evaluated so you you probably will be evaluating as well. 
Yeah, and and I that's great counsel and and helpful insight for somebody who's who's been through it. <laughs> um, I appreciate that. And I guess to me, what that ties into is the crucial importance of seizing the response to "Do you have any questions for us?" <laughs> or "How can I help you?" Um, receive those and really thinking through. And would it be fair to say, based on what you said, you know, does the CEO? Do you think it's somebody who could take my advice? Do I get a good feel about the culture? Do I like my peers? Kind of maybe, and I'm speaking out loud here, so grade my paper, Olga, but getting a list of core things that are important to you and then fleshing those, converting those into questions where you can gauge their responses. Like they're testing your experience uh, based on what the you know job description says. <laughs> you know, So you have a company description in your mind and you're testing against the things you'd like to see with the questions you ask and the time they, they give you to do that. Would that be a fair? Yeah, absolutely. It depends. You don't have to be explicit. Sometimes yeah. you can just very carefully listen to the answer. Yeah. Right. right. It's really hard to fake enthusiasm. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at some point, people will be honest. You know, yeah. like my favorite honesty when you talk to lawyers, for example, you know, if you ask your peer about another lawyer, um, they will either say that this person is a great lawyer or this person is a great person. Mm-hmm. And usually what that means, if I tell David, this person is a great lawyer, that sometimes means he may be a great lawyer, but not a great person. <laughs> mm, right, right. <laughs> because frankly, of course, if you make a recommendation, you know, that is a great lawyer, that's sort of table stakes. I find when people are also a pleasure to work with, people will say something other than he's a great lawyer. <laughs> mm, interesting. And listening for those cues, hmm. how others describe something. My, you know, or, you know, like when I was interviewing for Walfers, I would say, why do you get up in the morning? You know, it's remarkable how many people will say mortgage <laughs> and then they will yeah. nervously laugh. And then yeah. they say, well, yeah, of course, like, I like practicing the law. And I'm like, do you really? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Pretty telling. Yeah. No, that the art of listening then. So that's really helpful qualification. What I said was to have your kind of company description, seize the opportunity in the questions you ask, but maybe be a little um, soft, but exercise the art of listening in response to the questions. And even when they're just generally asking you questions, how they ask, that's would that yeah, be fair? I actually say, think yeah. the way they, the, what they probe you. Yeah, is often very mm. telling. Interesting. Um, it, 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 you know, they they it's it, it will tell you. Do they want you to have? Do they want to have kind of a a very assertive lawyer who is mm. sort of a more dominant figure, or do they want somebody with a, a little bit more finesse? Um, and and what is their history with lawyers? You know, internal mm. lawyers, leaders, legal leaders, external lawyers. Um, mm. Because you'll find that um, you know, your peers and CEO have have relationship with law and, and lawyers, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's very functional. They've been trained very well, and they 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 are well trained. And sometimes they're not. Yeah. Um, and you mm. can decide whether this is a project you want to take on. <laughs> right. <laughs> Do I want to educate this person on how to use a lawyer or or not? <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, that's that's that is a really helpful insight. I appreciate that, Olga. Want to transition to 
a recent, I read this morning, um, you're above the law article, five important skills for the in-house counsel of the future. Very much a title I would expect from you. And one of the skills that you highlighted that I know you have a passion for and really interested in getting your thoughts to the listeners here is creativity and the role that plays in in-house practice, being a general counsel generally. So just would love to hear your thoughts on what that means to you and how to grow, exercise that creativity muscle. Creativity to me means solving a new or old or hard or easy problem in a different way Mm. that gets you better results, whatever better means to you. <laughs> right. Um, you know, that could be measured in money, it could be an impact, it could be timeline, or whatever that means to you. Um, and, I, you know, I've spent quite a lot of time on this thing called creativity. Um, uh, initially, because my, uh, you know, my, you know, initially when I was, eight i was considering to you know what i want to be when i grow up i i was actually training to be an artist so i've been thinking about this creativity from the visual point of view pretty early on mm. and kind of throughout my life um as i zeroed in on other fields um and having been kind of uh in considering different opportunities from you know you say phd in economics to being a lawyer to being a technologist to being a, a trained artist, um, it is my view that humans are generally creative. It's an equal opportunity mm. open to anyone in any profession. Um, and what I usually say is that all of us are capable of random acts of creativity. Mm. <laughs> And you see that among lawyers. You, you know, if you if you are a um, expert in a field, you will see this creative brief, or you will see this creative argument, or you will see this creative clause. You mm. see this, right? And if you're in a if you have enough knowledge and background, you will recognize it. Uh, so lawyers are capable of creativity, and it, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen it. I've seen it many, many oh, yeah. times. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> the question is. How do you go from random acts of creativity to intentional acts of creativity mm. on demand, right? And I yeah. think that that's that, that, that's what I kind of been asking myself now for quite a while in in in, in many uh, positions I've been, and in, including being the general counsel, including being a litigator, including uh, doing data crunching as an economist, including being an artist. Um, and um, in the context of law, you know, I think there are you know, probably a few steps and they may be generalizable across other disciplines. Um, I think that training yourself, step number one, when you say, I cannot imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a theme for this, one, this yeah, conversation I, for sure. You know, imagination problems in law are prevalent. <laughs> yes. I find them to be much more prevalent than in any other field. I don't think we're the only folks who are guilty of that, but I find that the rigidity in law and of law really makes imagination problems more severe. 
Mm. We think that when we say this has not been done before and I cannot imagine it, that's the end. Mm. And I invite folks, lawyers who articulate this in, you know, out loud or inside their heads when they say that, that that is just the beginning. <laughs> mm. That just means you cannot imagine. It doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means you may have imagination problems. Mm. And I think recognizing that, that actually for me took a, a long time, especially in law. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's an intentional practice. So I, I think that's very important. Number two, what I see is when I see lawyers being creative, they tend to be on the intersection of law and something else. Yeah. Kind of like a fusion cuisine, right? Yeah. Like Vietnamese French is a really amazing thing. But it's something you would not have, I would not have thought about. But, you know, when you tried, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, that's why you see quite a lot of kind of um, quote unquote creative out of the box stuff on say um, law and technology, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's a different discipline. It allows you to take principles of both and 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 find some fusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it doesn't have to be law and technology. It could be you know law and something else. Right, like law and psychology. I, I I've seen some folks do some interesting stuff in courtroom on that intersection. Well, well. Why not just intersect, just interact with just this concept really quickly? Because what you're saying is really resonated with me. On saying, would would it be fair to say that an in-house person, lawyer, has a unique position to have law and something else where creativity is really uh, fertile? In the sense that you are a hybrid between a law firm, <laughs> your lawyer, but you're also kind of a business person. And so you have this law and the underlying industry or the underlying business being so integrated in a unique way that isn't in the firm. So it's kind of like law and economics or law and technology. Is that fair? You think that's a little Absolutely. bit of a stretch? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. That's one of the one of you, you see, you know, one, I think some households have a little bit more pressure to be creative because mm, their business partners actually also ask for that. Right. Um, there are business reasons to be creative, but yeah. also because you're surrounded by people who think different. You right. know, your CFO thinks differently. You know, in yep. the law firm, you're surrounded by other lawyers. Ex- yeah, and, exactly. You know, who possibly have gone to the same law school. Yes. You know, yeah. So chances are, it's 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 you know, you know you are seeing shades of gray, whereas mm. you know in house your peers again coming back to your peers are people who had different trainings. Yeah. Um, and view the world very differently, and will challenge your hypothesis, and you can be stuck in the place of I cannot imagine, or you can ask them to elaborate and meet them in the middle. And you're much more likely to get to the creative outcome. So absolutely. And, you know, by virtue of being present in the industry forces, yeah. like it forces you to really refine your view mm. of law in, in that context. So absolutely. You see quite, I think you definitely see quite a lot of creativity in house because of pressures from the business mm. and because you are surrounded by, by folks who are not a version of you. Right. Right. And to your point, it's not a nice to have kind of fancy word to talk about. It's as you're framing it, it's absolutely expected and and needed to excel in-house. 
Yeah, that's usually a job description. Yeah, right, right. Uh, interesting. So just to make sure I got your definition of creativity, because I thought it was very fascinating. Is it to solve an existing problem in a new way with a better outcome? Is that, did I get yeah, that a right? New, okay. a new or an old problem. That new or an old problem. problem. Okay. Any, so any problem. Any problem um, in a new way with a better outcome. With a better outcome. Interesting. That's very helpful. Interesting. That, that's that's very fascinating. I, we, I know we have a couple more minutes and I, I know we could talk about creativity for a long time. I just want to, I know one thing that is uniquely interesting to you because you've lived it um, in several different ways, but thinking about the general counsel role, not only as an end of itself, but as a platform to other things. Uh, for example, you are a CEO, you were a GC, now you're on the board. I've written a book about how to get on boards. How do you how do you think about as people think about GCs, not as thinking broadening the perspective? So this isn't just an end, but maybe it's a point on a longer journey. I'm interested in your thoughts there? Yeah, I spend quite a lot of time seeing that law has very rigid swim lanes. Mm. That is probably true across other fields as well. The law doesn't just have swim lanes. It has brick walls that are hard. <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah. know, you, yeah. you know, you see in, the, in business, if you observe your colleagues, you'll find that folks move from, move from marketing to sales to customer yeah. success to operations right. somewhat fluidly. They will talk about the hardships and the pivots, right? but it's not an impossible dream, right? Right, right. Whereas in law... It's not just a swim lane. It's it's a divide made of concrete. <laughs> yes. And you don't seem like any moment whatsoever. And what I see is just given the technology and the changes, is that what we call legal executives today is much broader. Um, people. People tell me, Olga, you're a recovering lawyer, which always kind of leaves me puzzled, like as if law has been like a you know horrible disease or bad habit right. or or something unhealthy. But the reality is, I, I, I I'm a proud lawyer. I work very hard to become one, um, <laughs> and I enjoyed it. And so it sort of always leaves me like, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe not. Um, because folks feel that, you know, by the time you become a general counsel and then you become, you know, I became VP of strategy before I became the CEO, oh, you are on the business side, you have recovered from mm. law. I actually very much feel like I'm in law, partially mm. because I serve the legal community um, and, and, and our product does, um, partially because I use a lot of similar skills. Mm. Um, I just think that what we call a legal executive has brought it. You know, I don't mm. necessarily give legal advice, but that doesn't mean I'm not a legal executive. Mm. And I challenge people, you know, I, I usually in the room of, you know, people who would ask me whether I'm a recovering lawyer and how I feel about it, I ask them to, to what do you call a legal executive? And, and they will mm. start saying like, you know, things like head of legal, VP of legal, general counsel, CLO. And um, I let them go on for a while. And then I asked them, well, why, why don't we call those people COO, mm. CFO, CEO? 
why not board them? <laughs> right. Um, why, you know, because it's not unusual for CFO to become a CEO. Right. Or the board member, but somehow we think that a lawyer who does that is no longer a lawyer. <laughs> right. And I, I would say today we see quite a lot of increasingly movement. Um, and I think the definition of a legal executive has changed. So mm. I consider myself a legal executive. Uh, I was one when I was a general counsel. I was one when I was a VP of strategy. Mm. And yes, I am one as a CEO. Interesting. And, and I know you've thought a lot, written about, advised people towards board um, service. Are you seeing more openness to lawyers? Because to your point earlier, I think, you know, it used to be if you were a CFO, primarily a, G, or a CEO, then they'd want you on the board. But it seems to me, and maybe I wonder if you're seeing the same thing, there seems to be more openness to um, getting lawyers on, on boards, um, easier I, path. I think people don't think about getting a lawyer or financial professional or a marketing professional on the board. Mm. I think um, people think about board members in a different way. Mm. And, um, and, and I think it's important to understand that uh, you, if you're joining as a board member, you're not there to give legal advice. Right. You actually, frankly, not there to operate the company. Right. And that's an important shift in the way you think what you bring to the table mm. and how you think of your career. Mm. Um, and that means that you're not thinking about day-to-day -day contracts. You're not thinking about privacy. You're not thinking <laughs> about right. litigation that is... Um, may materialize, right? It's a different way of looking at the company and relating to people. Mm. So, um, so cool. I think this, what, what, you know, you are there to, as a board member, to oversee, right. to provide direction, to give strategy, to put in place correct leaders, to lead yourself. Those are not operational skills. Right. Those are different set of skills. And the way you talk about yourself and how you articulate the value you bring to the board changes. And if you happen to have a law degree and a member of the bar, in addition to that, who cares? Right. You may also have marketing experience or sales experience or financial experience and right. financial experience, right? right? But the reason what you bring to the board is not, you know, yes, your wealth of operational experience plus, and you need to be clear what that plus is. So nobody mm. gets to be on the board because they're a lawyer. In the right. same way, they don't get there because they are former sales professional. They get there because they, by virtue of various steps they've taken, they bring other things. And law just happens to be one of the things and I think what you see is not, so, I, don't, I, I don't think people are, the public at large or executives at large are against lawyers being there. I think it's just executives, uh, lawyers have been historically thinking about themselves in a more narrow way. Mm. And as you see the definition of legal executive become more robust and inclusive and 
and broader, you see a rise of legal executives who transcend just being day-to-day operations mm-hmm. uh, and becoming strategists, industry mm-hmm. leader, folks with deep and wide network, and folks with a reputation that the board can benefit from. That is a very unique perspective that I've never heard, and it's extremely helpful. I'm very thankful that our listeners got to to hear this. I know we could go on forever, and it's unbelievable. We're already at almost an hour, Olga. So thank you again so much for being so generous with your time. I really appreciate you being on. Absolutely, David. Thank you for inviting me. It's always great to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. Well, this brings us to the end of the conversation. Thank you so much, Aspiring GCs, also for being here with us. Again, we'd love to hear from you. Please send any comments or questions, including any expressions of interest in being part of the ABA Corporate Governance Committee or its small but mighty in-house subcommittee to dph64 at georgetown.edu. That's dph64 at georgetown.edu. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.